We're in Numbers chapter 5. And we, um, when, you, when you look at um, Numbers chapter 5, God is using different figures to um, stand metaphorically uh, for sin, and particularly for man as a sinner. Sin is depicted as leprosy, so the unconverted, unsafe person is depicted before God as a leper. That's the whole business of unclean. If you know the, your Bible, you'll know the, the, the commensurate passages that uh, Moses is referring back to in Leviticus. The, the, um, the leper is chapter 13 and 14. And then you have the, the, the business of um, bodily um, discharges, that man is inherently a sinner, that man is unclean by virtue of just being conceived by ordinary generation. And then you see that death is a, 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 um, sin is a death bringer, or that natural man is a, is a walking spiritual dead man. And then when we come tonight, the figure turns to adultery. And at the end of maybe halfway through the first section, it says that any kind of sin against God even in the second table of the, the, the commandments, uh, commandment 5 through 10, is a form of unfaithfulness against God. And the, in, in the word for unfaithfulness uh, is uh, na'af, it's adultery. So all sin is a species of adultery against God. I'm just going to say that at the outset, because when we come here and we're de- dealing with this test for an adulterous woman, sometimes we think wrongly, boy, what, what, what an absolute... Utter wretched floozy, and I thank God that I'm not made like this tax collector, wretched floozy. None of us have that ability because the Bible has already used that word previously to say any sin against God, even against man, which is indirectly against God, is a species of adultery against God. That means everybody here would fail the test for the adulterous woman, just so we know at the outset. So now we're going to look at sin being a species of adultery, and then man is being depicted, natural man, as an adulterer or an adulteress. This is a James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, where, where God the Holy Spirit inspires James to refer to the church, you adulteresses, meaning, and if you look at the context of James 4, 1 through 10, the people are being selfish, and the people are being worldly not necessarily even sexually unclean. They're just being worldly. And the Holy Spirit says that's a species of adultery. So we're guilty in that. Okay. Uh, Numbers chapter 5. I'm going to read 11 through 31. And uh, let's see what we can see. Verse 11. Hear God's holy word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him... And a man has intercourse with her and is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, although she is defiled herself and there is no witness against her and she's not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, now, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall bring his wife to the priest shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah or barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it nor frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a a reminder of iniquity. 
Then the priest shall bring her near, have her stand before the Lord. The priest shall take some holy water in an earthenware vessel. He shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose. Place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy, and in the hand of the priest to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, If no man has lain with you and you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with an oath of the curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And the water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The priest then shall then write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand. He shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. Altar. The priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. Afterwards, he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy, when a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear her guilt." Let's pray. Holy God, you are a holy God, and forgive me, Lord, for not treating you as holy, and forgive us all for not um, not being increasingly aware and sensitive to your blindingly spotless purity, Lord, that you are a God that absolutely abominates sin. We don't but you do. Help me tonight in the treatment of this passage. Help us in the reception of it. May we hold the marriage bed to be in honor um, in in all ways, and may none of us defile our own uh, marriage bed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title is The Sanctity of Marriage, and I, I would add a second part to it, In the Offense of Adultery, would be a good perfection to the, the, the title. The sanctity of marriage, that's the positive duty of what's being implied. And then obviously the main passage has to do with the offense of uh, adultery. Let me start with the doctrine and just mention my method is going to be 
to look at some of the principal truths, I think the particulars, even as strange as they may, may appear, are fairly evident. I'll mention that in just a bit. It's not a tricky passage to understand. It's strange, but it's not, it's not a hard passage to understand. So I'm going to deal with this whole passage thematically, even as I mention the business of, uh, of leprosy standing for man as a sinner and so on. So um, let's look at the basic doctrine. Because I think if we step back and we try to get the big idea of this passage, it's not that confusing. So what we have here is we have a, a, a test for adultery. It's referred to as a jealousy test, something like that. The picture is we have a husband. Obviously, he thinks his wife has been unfaithful to him and has committed adultery, that she has gone with um, another man. She's introduced a third person into the, 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 the relationship. So the test that, that's being provided is a test for a woman who is su- suspected of committing adultery against her husband. And the husband's the one that's going to bring the charges to the church, as it were, to, to the priests. And what I want to do, and this is going to seem perhaps overly simple, I want to start first with the definition. We're just going to look at the various things regarding adultery and the adulterer. And forgive me at the outset, um, it is kind of a del- delicate, it's more than a kind of a delicate su- subject, but it is a very delicate subject. And then when you look at the way that the Lord speaks, it is very earthy. It's very earthy. I recognize that. If you're not a Bible Christian, and I'm not picking on anyone, there are lots of Christians that are not Bible Christians. They're more ritualistic. They're more sacerdotal priesthood. It was the church of my youth. So they're not used to Bible. And so their form of Christianity is a little form of Bible. Be good. Have the sacrament. Have a nice day. They're never going to come to this passage ever. So I'm not picking on them. But if you want to be a Bible Christian, which Jesus says in Matthew 4, verse 4, we are to live on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. So to be a Bible Christian means we have to go here. I'm not saying there aren't Christians that say, I've never heard this. The reason you've never heard it is you don't read the Bible. I don't even like this. The reason you don't like this is you don't submit to the word of God. I'm not saying that being overly critical of another human being. But just recognize, if we are going to be Bereans, you cannot miss these passages, because God has them here. So I, I realize that some of it is like, this is offensive. We, we, we are to repent of our being offended at any part of the word of God. Now, if I preach it offensively, um, that's another matter. So what we'll do is we'll start off with since this is a test for a suspected adulteress, let's give the definition of adultery. And I know you're going to think, well, boy, everyone here knows that. I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know if they do. Um, adultery is, it is the sexual relations of a married person with someone other than one's spouse. It's not, it's not, the same thing, although it's a species of sexual relations among unclean, uh, un, un singles, excuse me. So we've mentioned this before. Um, sexual relations among singles would be, go under the classification, at least in Greek, of porneia. Once you introduce a marriage covenant, then under the, in the Greek, it would be moikeia. So it's the, it's the infidelity 
of breaking faith with one's covenantal spouse that you stood up before God and said, I swear to God, and I'm going to read those covenantal vows. So that's the difference between, say, fornication among singles versus fornication among marrieds. That would be an additional aggravation of the particular sins. We do aggravate our sins before God. We make them worse, or we can diminish them based on what the nature nature of the sin is, based on who's sinning, uh, the person being sinned against, and the occasion of the sin. But what makes adultery so ugly and offensive is it sinning against the wife or the husband of one's youth. Excuse me. It's a coven. It's a sin against the covenant or the bond. When someone is married, that marriage bond is depicted as a one flesh bond. I believe it's a spiritual amalgamation. I can't offer any better definition than what, and God shall make the two into one flesh. And it it is not the, the, the conjugal intimacy that doesn't even make sense to me. The one flesh is not something that we become more like our spouse. It is an instantaneous kinship. The husband is the head, the wife is the body. There is a one new person, as it were, but it's a spiritual amalgamation. And that is affected by the covenant vow or promise that the participants take before God. So when we look at the sexual uncleanness, it is greatly aggravated. Among, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's, it's okay with the singles. It is still a sin with the singles. But it is intensely aggravated when it occurs among uh, a married person because of, of that vow. I mentioned this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because we, we were in um, Acts with Paul going to Corinth and it was, um, there was a word they created in Greek to Corinthianize. It meant to commit immorality. And I mentioned that as Christians, we are one spirit with Christ. And then when, when you hear the word one sark, so one flesh, it always is in reference to our wife. So the one flesh in the Bible is the marriage between Adam and Eve. That's the first one flesh. That's marriage. Marriage is one flesh union. Then our marriage is one flesh. And we are one spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then with, with the prostitute, which was what was going on in Corinthians, they became one soma, one body. And they were breaking faith with the wife of their youth, which is so obnoxious. The Bible says that positively, that marriage is to be held in honor by all. Beloved, I, I, I put a Facebook post. I know only two people see it because of the algorithm. Our country needs to recapture God's view of marriage. They really do. And I'm going to go one step beyond that. And I hate to say this. The church needs to recapture God's view of marriage. And I don't mean those, oh, the bad Arminians, the bad... No, no, it doesn't matter. Presbyterians, Episcopalians... Baptist, it does not matter. The professing Christian church needs to recapture God's view on marriage. And here's the one related to it. Again, we're just looking at this thematically. We need to capture, recapture God's view on conjugal intimacy, on sexual expression, 
on sexual uncleanness and sexual clean. We, we have to have God's thoughts on that. Because I will tell you right now, the church has been infected with the marriage view of the world and the church of any stripe has been infected with the sexual views of an antichrist world. This is not deniable. And I promise I, I will not be um, inordinately pointed. So we, we need to once again recapture when God says marriage is to be held in honor. It's to be sanctified uh, by all. And that adultery is intensely offensive uh, to God. And sexual immorality, intensely offensive to God. And beloved, we just don't, I, I know for myself, we, we, don't, we do not, we do not have God's view on that. And I want to remind us, when we come to the business of this test for the, for the adulteress, and remember it's a, it's a potential violation of a marriage covenant. If you were married and you took traditional marriage vows, it's the only vows that I will administer. So as a minister, I perform weddings and, and, and funerals. But in a wedding, I don't allow people to, to write their own vows and say, now you, John, move your lips to my fake vow. I only do the traditional vows because in my opinion, they capture what the Bible teaches on the business of marriage. And here is what married people swear to, which is why what's going on is so painful. You say to the man, will you have this? Remember, when people get married, it's with their free consent. No one is forcing anyone. We don't have... We don't, we, we, we don't have the kind of marriage that my wife, at least her parents grew up with. It's their free consent. Man, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live with her after God's commandments in the holy estate of marriage? And then the question goes on, will you love her? Will you honor her? Will you cherish her? so long as you both shall her, her. Do you men promise to take this woman to love her, only her, only her, until you die? Do you, woman, take this man to be your wedded husband to live with him after God's commandments in the holiest state of marriage, will you love him, cherish him, obey him, as long as you both shall live? Only him. Now, I'm going to point out something. Our confession holds, it's not a permanence. It's not a permanence. There are exceptions for, for adultery and for desertion. But I will tell you, that the vow that Christians take from the traditional vow, it is a permanence vow. I'm not interacting with our understanding of Scripture. I'm just saying that the vow that people take, it is a permanence vow. No one is vowing to the exceptions. I'm not picking on that. I'm just pointing that out. You, we are, if you took that vow, you didn't say, if she does this, if she does that, it may be a, a permissible according to the Bible, but you didn't vow that. You vowed till death. I take thee to be my wedded wife. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be their loving and faithful husband. In sickness and health, 
plenty and want and joy and sorrow. And the wife, I promise to be thy loving and faithful wife in sickness and health and plenty and want. And here's the kicker, in joy and in sorrow till death do us part. And then God affects the marriage union. God is the one that makes the two into one flesh. This is why introducing a third party into that covenantal one flesh union is so abhorrent to God. It's so, it's so intensely wicked. And our culture treats it like eating potato chips. Um, and God, God, it's a violation of the covenant. And so to introduce a third party into a marital union, it is a violation of one's covenantal vows. It's a violation of the covenant. And then the question will be, does it have to be actual adultery or actual sexual uncleanness, or can it be virtual? And the answer is yes. Read Matthew 5. If you look at a woman who is not your wife and you want her sexually, you're an adulterer. That's this. So that's why this section is here. This is the First Corinthians chapter 10. This is a warning passage. All of the Bible is not as equally sweet as all of the Bible. There are some things in the Bible that are just flat out make you afraid. This is here to have us have a, a, a view of God's holiness. But the holiness of a marriage. When you see, I just watched a marriage in... in uh, ceremony in Orlando. When you hear those vows, rather than just, oh, isn't that sweet, isn't that, it it should make you tremble. Next to receiving Jesus, it's the most intense vow you'll ever take in your life. So I I, want to recognize something about, again, we're just studying this text in a macro kind of a way. I want to acknowledge something that I maybe said at the very beginning. This is a unique passage. If you're not a Bible person, even if you are a Bible person, you come here and think, who in their right mind would preach this? Only the person that's bound to to preach the word of God. But this is a very unique passage. And it it does, I confess, seem very, very strange. I want to say something. As you look at this very unique and seemingly strange passage to our flesh, I want us to back up and acknowledge something as Christians. We are Christians. Are there things in our holy religion that, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, would appear utterly nonsensical to the flesh? Are there things? Think of them. The Trinity. Shema, O Israel, the Lord thy God is what? Go ahead, say it. One. Consisting, we say, as Christians, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, unmixed, unchanged, unseparated, undivided, says the Council of Nicaea. One in three persons, equal in power and glory. Tell that to an unbeliever. What do they think? They think it's crazier than this passage. Tell the unbeliever the essence of our holy religion is stunningly unique, is antithetical to the flesh. The essence of our holy religion is the second person of the Godhead was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born of her, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial blood sacrifice, atoning death, and simply by our believing in this one, we're saved. 
What does natural man say to that? They think it's crazier than this. So, beloved, when you come to a passage in the Bible and say, this, is, this makes no sense, and since it seems stro- so strange, it can't be true. The fundamentals of our faith, without faith, which is a gift of God, the Trinity makes no sense, you'd reject it. The hypostatic union, the two natures of Jesus, you would reject. The atoning sacrifice, you would reject. The essence of what it means to be a Christian, you would think is utter nonsense. There are lots of things in the Bible that to our flesh run radically contrary to what we think. All this proves to us is the fact that what God says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. There are things in the Bible which are clear, and there are things in the Bible which are not clear. And when you come to this passage, if you have a man like a Philip who runs up next to the Ethiopian eunuch, and in the Ethiopian eunuch, eunuch says, how do I understand this passage? If you have someone say, consider this, consider that, then the passage makes perhaps some sense. Now, from the uniqueness of this adultery test, I want us to consider the epoch of the adultery test because this is significant. Obviously, and I don't mean to be overly simple, this is an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament runs from Genesis to Malachi. And the thing that separates the Old Testament epoch or era from the New Testament is the incarnation of Christ. From Genesis to Malachi is the promise of the coming of Christ. From Matthew to Revelation, Christ has come. And now we wait for Christ to come back. So that's the delineation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament epoch, it was the time of Israel's infancy. This is a Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time. But in in this Old Testament epoch, God was speaking to his church, I'll call them, or the household of faith, in their infancy. And so he spoke in types, in shadows, in the administration of his law. So he's using, I hate to put it this way, he's talking baby talk to the church in their infancy. And so when we come here, this is either the ceremonial law or the judicial law. And I'm not entirely convinced in myself but it's either one of those two laws. In the Old Testament, we have the expression of three laws. The moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, further summarized by Christ in Matthew 22, under two heads, love God and love man. Moral law is perpetual. You keep the moral law in heaven. In the Old Testament, we have the ceremonial law, which was the gospel in type and shadow. It's what the book of Leviticus is all about. That has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. We don't have it anymore. The judicial law was specific for Israel as, a, as a, a church state, as a theocratic nation. And that, that goes away with the going away of the theocratic nation of Israel. I'm not saying that Israel as a nation has gone away, but as a theocratic church state, it has. Matthew 21, the kingdom has been taken away. That, that's gone. The only thing that would remain, since those laws are no more, are that which is principle to the the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And so this particular test is not a one-to-one in the New Testament, but the concepts, the principles would still be prevalent, namely coming from the Seventh Commandment. The Seventh Commandment forbids the breach of the marital union, adultery. And so the, the, the opposite, the positive, is engendered, the sanctity of marriage. So that the principle of this passage is very much applicable 
that God requires us in the New Testament, like he did here, to uphold the holiness of marriage and to shun unfaithfulness in the marriage covenant. But that's moral law. So this here is in the old epoch, either ceremonial or judicial, and that's done away in the New Testament. I hope I didn't lose you. I'll send my notes during this week. But it's the epoch. That's what's going on. God is speaking to his church in their infancy. Now, when you look at this, um, I, I confess, when I, when, when I was studying through this passage, I felt bad for the wife. I, I, tend, I tend to feel bad a lot. I, I don't know whether that's just my constitution. I feel bad for people. And I felt bad for the wife. And it does seem, at first glance, boy, it seems like the woman's getting a raw deal here. And it seems like the guy is getting a pass. Now, picture yourself as this woman. You get hauled out like Hester Prynne, and you get hauled before the, the, the church court, and you get put in front of this humiliating, which what must have been humiliating and terrifying ordeal. And it, it is a male governed affair, kind of. So I, I confess, I, I thought, well, where's the counterpart for the man? When the woman thinks the man has been unfaithful, where's the counterpart? But we actually don't have a, a counterpart. Now, over the years, I have trained myself as a believer to distrust any distrust I have in God's word, if that makes any sense. So I know for a fact, because it happens to me, it must happen to other people, there are portions of the Bible that you come to as a believer. I don't like that, what I'm reading. And boy, that just seems wrong. Over the years, I have trained myself, when I think anything in God's word is wrong, to know that that is wrong. And even if I can't reconcile it at that moment, I will say to myself, it is reconcilable. Maybe I can't reconcile it right now, but it is reconcilable. And so I always want to vindicate God, even if I can't understand a hard-to-understand passage. But there was one commentator, I thought he was very insightful. He actually gives, I think, more of a pro-woman, and I don't mean pro-woman, hear me roar, I'm woman, hear me roar, against guy. Guys, he actually gives a, a, an exposition of this whole procedure, procedure actually in a favorable light towards the women. In this society, was it a male-governed, male-led society? Yes, I would say. I believe in the principle of male headship and so on. Rightly understood, not in a tyrannical sense. That's a whole other sermon. So the people in control of getting married was the girl's dad and in, in the, the future husband. And to get divorce was, was a male-generated thing. This is a Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. The woman could not, in the Old Testament, initiate a divorce. She couldn't get married without the men leading the process. She couldn't get divorced without her husband divorcing her. It was male-dominated society. And let's say you're in this male-dominated society, and you are a female, by God's doing, by the way. And there are only, just so anybody, if anybody's doubting, there, there are male people, and then there are female people. No extra charge for that. And so in this society, she would be considered a subordinate. I'm, I don't want to use the word inferior, but to use the language of our confession or catechism, God has created people in societies, all three, church, state, and family, as superior... 
my next fabulous point. Um, superiors, inferiors, and equals. Is this woman in this time in a position of inferiority or superiority? Is she running the show in any way? No. And now she's accused of adultery. Ultimately, what, there, there are no witnesses, which is why you have the adultery test. Who will judge her innocent? Will it be man? It will be God. And so this one commentator says, for this woman in this society, everything is male-dominated. Essentially, what we have here is man coming to, is God, excuse me, coming to the aid of the potentially innocent woman saying, I will defend you. I will vindicate your honor. If you were a woman in the society, essentially under the government of particularly a husband that was accusing you, and you had God come to your aid, would you not appreciate that? So it's just another way to consider this particular passage. Uh, But another thing related to that, and I don't think we think about this enough as Christians, which is related to the idea of God God is the one that will vindicate this woman that she is innocent or not. I don't think we think enough about people that are in a secondary or supportive role, meaning, let's say, a wife. She puts herself in greater submission, man-to-man submission, than her husband. The husband is authority over her, and it says in our passage she is under his authority. I don't think we think enough about the difficulty, or the, I don't know if difficulty is not the right word. I don't know what the right word is, but the gravity that faces people that are under the, the government of another person, particularly in that intimate relationship, say a wife to a husband, under the headship or the government of another sinful human being. The same thing is true with a, a child to a parent. And the same thing is true to a slave and a master. Um, some people are held to greater degrees of submission than other people, and we think, oh, it's just no big deal that the wife has to just submit. Um, Over the years of being married, and it's almost 37 for me, I've learned a little bit more of what it it is like or must be like for a woman to submit to a person that's still a sinner. It's not easy business. And so this, having God as the vindicator, seems to me a good thing. Now, we have, um, we, we mentioned it before, the uniqueness. There's a formula that runs through the book of no, um, Numbers. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, in other words, what this is showing us is the divinity of the adultery test. You could dip the entire Bible in red. You know, you have the book of your Bible that says the words of Jesus in red. Just dip your whole Bible in red. It's God's word. Every bit of it's God's word. So when you come to a passage like this and you're thinking, what in the world? Step back and remind yourself, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. And so what that means is, even if our flesh rises up against it, if it's God's word or since it's God's word, it's, it's, it's perfect, it's good, it's holy, it's right, it's just. And it's written for our instruction. All of this is, I know in a macro sense, we're just talking to ourselves to revive our faith that we would receive these things. 
Uh, but that's what we have. We have here the woman is under suspicion. The husband suspects his wife has been unfaithful to him. He's jealous. So God provides this jealousy test to have his suspicions proven or disproven. And again, just thematically, from the very first section of this, this little section here, you have only one of two choices for the woman. She is either guilty, and it says she's committed infidelity, she has gone with another man, or she's innocent. Beloved, I will just say this. Remember, this woman, this test is looking to us not as lepers, but as, as adulteresses. There are only two choices before God regarding sin. We are either guilty of the sin before God, we're either guilty sinners, and then we're culpable to the law of God, or we're innocent. So I, I will ask everyone in this room, are you a guilty sinner? Are you guilty? Have you committed sin in thought, word, and deed? Are, there's only two choices. You're either spotless before the law, the law. You are not guilty. You're faithful to God. And then you're not culpable to the law of God. Or you're guilty. There's no middle ground. There's no great, great, great. Lawbreaker or lawkeeper. Which are you, beloved? Which are you? Are you a guilty sinner? Culpable to the law? Or are you sinless? Those are the two choices. And see, why when we come here, we're not looking for a bag of rocks. At least I'm not looking for a bag of rocks. When you're looking for a bag of rocks, looking for the adulteress doing one of these, you need to slow it down. Slow it down. Are you innocent or are you guilty? This is going to means to drive us to Christ. So what we have here is there's no proof for the adultery. So there's a suspicion. And I, I will say this. People that are married, without being too earthy, people that are married, when they grow dissatisfied, which is what adultery will stems from, it stems from a lack of contentment with God's provision. And so because you're discontented in some way, you go looking to have your satisfaction or desire for pleasure met by a paramour, which means another lover. So contentment and then breeds this infidelity. When marrieds commit unfaithfulness, they try to hide it. So it's not a shocker that this is just a suspicion of and there's no proof. When people sin in this way, sexual uncleanness, particularly among marrieds, they are trying to, to, to hide it. And particularly in this day that we're looking at in the Bible, to be caught in adultery meant what for those caught in adultery, male and female? It was a death penalty offense. It was death penalty. I'll, I'll just tell you, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, I won't read it, they're lengthy. To be caught in adultery in the Old Testament epoch, male and female, you, you would be stoned to death. And if you were a priest's daughter, you would be burned to death. It was death penalty. You know, you know, you know what's amazing to me is 
People sin because it feels good, all kinds of sin. We gossip because it feels good to rip other people down because it supposedly builds us up. It feels good to get drunk because we feel like we're losers and then we're not losers because we're drunk and then we wake up and we're losers again. But people commit this kind of a sin because there is a token of pleasure to it. That's why people sin. The cost versus the benefits doesn't seem to match for the sin of adultery. A few minutes of, 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 of pleasure potentially will cost you your life. And then potentially, unless you find Christ, it will damn you. The Bible says that adulterers, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Throw virtual adultery in there. Throw pornography use in. Throw it in there. Every one of us, I don't even know what. It's not just the penalty of adultery sin is death. What's the wage of every sin in the Bible before God? It's death. See, the, the, the reason we would be cheering on this woman's death is because, one, we don't think that we are this woman, and one, we're super, aggra- we're super offended at this particular sin because we don't think we've, we've done it. We don't see the magnitude of our own sin. And we don't see that we are here. And we simply don't believe sin is worthy of death. We, we, even as Christians, we say it. We say the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.22, like parrots. And then we go sin with a high hand against marriage, against our bodies, against another person's body. So this is... They're committing an adultery at a time when it, to be discovered, was a death penalty. And it's just one of the things that you learn about adultery, sexual sin among marrieds, and I will say even sexual sins among um, singles, is um, sexual sin in, in general is exceedingly powerful. I don't know of another sin that has more power. Maybe pride. Yeah, maybe pride. Maybe pride has more power. Yeah, I think so. Pride has more power. Um, but it, it, it reduces one to the level of a beast. It's very bestial. And it also blinds you and deceives you. This is common with all sin. But sexual sins deceive you. It promises you this is just going to be the most intense, glorious pleasure in the world. And it, 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 so it, it magnifies the intended pleasure by the sin. And then it diminishes the promised divine punishment. You're never going to get caught. You won't be stoned to death. You won't be damned. It'll be all pleasure. And then it blinds you to the fact of both. And then when you engage in it, you realize very quickly that sexual sin didn't give me what it promised me. No, because the devil's a liar. And the promise that that God threatens against it, you're now culpable to it. Does that make sense? So... This is, this is a passage that shows us the absolute danger and foolishness of adultery and sexual immorality. But as I say, so there's no proof. There's the secretness of it because the woman has kept it hidden if she's guilty. Um, the, another thing that we learn principally, and I would argue this, is most of the sins that we commit are secret. Most of our sins are secret, are they not? So it's not a stunner that this woman could hide it from her husband, but what we're learning is she wouldn't have hidden it from God. But let's apply that to all of our other sins. 
Most of our sins that we commit against God and other human beings, there are no two or three witnesses to establish a waiting matter. To, to prove that she's an adulteress, to kill her, you need two or three witnesses to say we caught her. They didn't have them. But that's the case for most of our sins. There are no two or three witnesses that could rise up against you for 99% of our sins. Right? Right. But when God says, with no human witness, you're guilty, what is that teaching us principally? God knows every sin that we commit. God knows every act of unfaithfulness. Shut the door, like wipe clean your viewing history. Anything you want to do, God knows everything. And he will either condemn or he will vindicate. There's nothing hidden from our God. It is a stunning passage, though we keep it secret. Now, the test, as I say, is fairly straightforward. She is put under oath. She takes this water. The the dirt from the floor is not to indicate dirt from the floor. It's the holiness of the holy place. The hair being let down is a sign of mourning. This curse is being scraped into the water, ceremonial. In the bitterness, I think it uses the thigh as a euphemism. It's a species of lex talionis. If you use a certain portion of your body to sin against your husband and against God, then you won't be able to conceive. It's lex talionis. It's eye for an eye. And then if you're innocent, that you'll remain healthy. If you are uh, guilty, that portion of your body will rot away and, and you will have no children. You know, sometimes I think it almost would have been easier for her to get, get caught if she was guilty because she would just be put to death. So the guilty person would be an object lesson. She'd be noticeable in the community. I put as a Facebook uh, a post a, a picture of Hester uh, Prynne uh, from um, the Scarlet Letter, I think, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, I think, wrote that. Um, I think it was written in the 1850s, but during the time of the 1600s. And in the book, classic God-haters that write these books, it's the, the minister, Dimsdale or something, that impregnates Hester Prynne. And then they have baby Pearl. And she has to wear an A, right? That's this. It's the humiliation so God is teaching his church so many lessons about sin and the danger of it, the foolishness of it, his knowledge of it. And then he's showing us, be sure your sins will, what? And you'll be humiliated. Now, let me step back. What hope is there for a vile, unclean, wretched adulteress. What hope is there? Is there any hope for a person that has been unfaithful and broken their covenant to a good and a holy husband? Is there any hope? Or will it just be damnation justly deserved? Is there any hope for the guilty sinner? Let me read something and I'll be quiet. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. 
he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet in her, with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Beloved, the only hope for the guilty adulteress is Christ. And then he makes us clean, and then he marries us. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word. 